0: Father, there are times in the, uh, in the battle of life, and it is a battle, when we are verging on losing heart. And it isn't uh, all the time, but it's sometimes. Inevitably, when there are uh, this many guys in a room who uh, are committed to you and committed to your word, well, we can expect that the adversary is going to come after us. It's been said that his uh, most often used tool is discouragement. I would, I would uh, surmise that there are guys here tonight that have been fighting off discouragement this week. I think it's Psalm 42 where the psalmist said, Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why have you become cast down within me? It happens to us. We get cast down inside. We look all right on the outside, but inside we are uh, we're fatigued and we are discouraged and sometimes even bordering on despair. And it's a feeling, it's a wave that comes out of nowhere. And sometimes we understand, we understand what the reasons are and sometimes we don't. All we know is uh, we're fighting it off. But then he goes on and he says, Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him for the help of His saving acts. We look back over our lives, and uh, you, you came after us and brought us to know Christ. And we trusted in Him because He is the great Savior and He went to the cross for our sins. And when we were regenerated by your Spirit, you gave us a new heart. You gave us a new mind. Our sins were cast into the deepest part of the sea as far as the east is from the west. So far have you removed our transgressions from us. And we are so grateful for what Jesus did on the cross for us that, that at that moment in time, we didn't even exist, yet he paid for all of our sins, which are all in the future. They've already been paid for. And we live in awe of that fact. But we thank you that Jesus keeps on saving us. We thank you that he keeps on saving us from situations that overwhelm us. He keeps on saving us from uh, moments of depression and weeks of depression and even months when, when it seems as though nothing is going our way. But Lord, we look back over our lives and we, we see not only salvation when we came to know you, but we have seen your saving acts so many times in our lives when, when we were at our wit's end. Some of us are there tonight. And I pray, Lord, that for the guys that are fighting off discouragement and depression and even despair, that they would hope in you. And that they would remind themselves that they will again praise you for the help of your saving act. You just keep helping us. You just keep saving us. And we need it. We are not in this thing by ourselves. The Lord is my shepherd. You were on every flank. You are in front, you're behind, you're to each side. We thank you for that truth. Now help us to live off it tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, the past uh, few days, uh, it seems as though the entire world has been remembering um, a great visionary, uh, and, and for good reason. Um, we, we use the products every day. Uh, Dave's using it right now, checking the score. <laughs> I'm just kidding you. I'm giving you a hard time, Dave. Uh, he was the one who came up with the mouse. He was the one who came up with the on-screen window. He was the one who came up with, uh, with the whole idea of, uh, of a computer that did more important things than just compute. Um, there was the idea that it could be used to solve everyday problems by, uh, by everyday people. And of course, you know that I'm talking about uh, Douglas Engelbart. Because Douglas Engelbart was the man who invented the mouse. Douglas Engelbart was the man who invented uh, on-screen windows. Douglas, In- by the way, Douglas Engelbart is still alive. Um, Douglas Engelbart? Yeah. A brilliant man. Uh, you say, well, wait a minute, I thought Steve Jobs picked all that up. If, if you, you you may remember, if you read one of the stories, that they had the little, he and Wozniak had this little company called Apple, and they were invited over to Xerox, and they had a special Xerox research team, and they were working on a little crazy little computer called the, the Alto. And when they went over there, uh, they met a man named Alan Kay, and Kay said, well, here's what we're doing, but nobody here, they're not gonna fund it because they, uh, the upper brass and the bean counters, they, they don't get the idea of a personal computer. And as the article in the Wall Street Journal said this week, to them that's like personal aircraft carrier. It makes no sense because you remember back then, computers were just big mainframes. That's all they were. I remember I had a summer job delivering air freight did it for many summers in San Francisco, and I remember delivering a mainframe computer on Montgomery Street in San Francisco. And we were tying it off, we were on a hill, and we were trying to get that thing out of that truck, and uh, uh, one of the other guys slipped, and that sucker rolled and dropped four feet. I couldn't believe they signed for it. (laughs) But that's how computers were back then. And that little iPhone you've got has probably got more juice than that big sucker had back then in 19 1968. Uh, a lot of people talk about, well, Jobs went in there, and he saw the mouse, and he saw it, and he said, we can do this. And he took the technology that Alan Kay had developed. But see, Alan Kay really hadn't developed it. Alan Kay had learned it at Stanford Research Institute Institute from Douglas Engelbart. This guy who came up with the whole thing. He's gotten virtually no credit. The reason I bring this up is this. Um, when you study the life of great men, there are others who were in their lives who were extremely strategic and extremely important and played key roles who virtually got no credit. That's why we are studying the life of David through a little different lens. Maybe you've been in a Bible study before and you've studied the life of David. Fascinating study, one of the great, great men of all of history. Uh, His adage, uh, a man after God's own heart. No higher honor, you see. Right up there with Moses, right up there with Daniel, right up there with Elijah. A flawed man, as we all are, but a great man. A a man who was pivotal in the history of of Judah. Uh, A a man who the Old Testament gives a significant chunk to his life and to his psalms. But uh, as that has been said, no man is an island, and and we benefit from the lives of other people. Uh, Even our enemies. We have enemies, we have friends. We, we have uh, those that are on our team and those that are against us. But, but every man benefits from the lives of others who have mentored him, who have pioneered ideas, who have done the, uh, uh, the, the, the first work, who have dug the first trenches, who have done the foundational work, and others come along and take an idea and they develop it, or they've been influenced, or they've been mentored. You know what I'm saying. So we're looking at the life of David, through the life of different individuals that impacted him and played a role in his life, and it's quite a life, and it is quite a story, is it not? Um, but but I, 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 think it's, I do think it's fitting, as we go into this study, um, to, to think a little bit about life and about death, because um, it, it has been an interesting week. Because, uh, really, Steve Jobs was a guy that has impacted all of us. He, he, was, uh, he the guy was a visionary, an innovator. We use his, uh, I mean, you know what I'm talking about. It's just incredible, is it not? It's just absolutely remarkable, and it's incredible. Uh, there's a biography coming out, it's the first one he's authorized, by Walter Isaacson, who is formerly the managing editor of Time, and Flying back from California this weekend, I picked up the Weekend Wall Street Journal. And uh, there's an article, Steve Jobs and the Coolest Show on Earth. Um, I just quoted from that. But then the guy sitting next to me handed me Time Magazine and said, I just finished reading it, are you interested? And uh, I normally don't read it, but I said, sure, because Jobs is on the cover. And there was an article here by Isaacson, whose biography is coming out in a month. And he talks about the fact that he got a call one day from Jobs, and he was surprised. Now, Isaac'son is a world-class biographer. He's done a huge biography on Franklin and uh, Benjamin Franklin, another one on Einstein. He gets a call from Steve Jobs, wanted to get with him, and they arranged to get together, and Jobs basically said to him, "This was a number of years ago, uh, "I'd like you to write a biography on me." And he kind of laughed, and he said, "I don't think so, because a uh, pretty young man, usually wait till." You know, your life's over to do that. You got a long way to go. And what he didn't know that Jobs was just about ready to have his first surgery for cancer. And so they developed a relationship over the years. I'll read you the last paragraph. Uh, He visited with Jobs three, four weeks ago at his home. He says, a few weeks ago, I visited Jobs for the last time in his Palo Alto, California home. He had moved to a downstairs bedroom because he was too weak to go up and down the stairs. He was curled up in some pain, but his mind was still sharp and his humor vibrant. We talked about his childhood, and he gave me some pictures of his father and family to use in my biography. As a writer, I was used to being detached, but I was hit by a wave of sadness as I tried to say goodbye. In order to mask my emotion, I asked the one question that was still puzzling me. Why had he been so eager? during close to 50 interviews and conversations we had had over the course of the last two years, to open up so much for a book, when he was usually so, so very, very private, Job said, I want my kids to know me. And I wasn't there for them. I wasn't always there for them, and I wanted them to know why. And I want them to understand what I did. I find it very, very sad that they're gonna have to find out through a book. When I heard that he had died, there was a verse that came to my mind. It just did. Because earlier in the week, is it the Forbes 400 or the Fortune 400 or the, it's the 400 rich guys. And uh, Jobs was in there. I think it was 6.3 billion. So I knew his net worth and I heard that he died at 55 and the verse that came into my mind was, what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and should lose his own soul? It's tragic. Um, turn with me to Psalm 39. Where, we're gonna set this up for David by uh, looking at a couple of Psalms. It's always good to, to stop and reflect and to think about how we're living and about what we're doing. It's easy to criticize someone else. In Psalm 39, it speaks of the brevity of life if you note verse four. Oh, I have a question before we read this. How many of you guys are how many of you guys are 70 years old or older? Can I see your hands? OK. Anybody 80 years old? Right here? A Couple guys? Yeah, Dave? <laughs> You're not sure, Jim. You're not sure. Take out your driver's license. It'll be right on. I'm giving you a hard time. OK. All right here's my point, and all that, OK? So you're 70, maybe 80 years old. Let me ask you something. That seems like a long time, does it not? Has it gone by quickly? Yeah, it has. But see, if you're 20, you go, 80. 80. Man, that's forever. Actually, it isn't, and that's what Psalm 39 speaks of in verse 4. Lord, make me to know my end And what is the extent of my days? Let me know how transient I am. Behold, you have made my days as handbreadths, and my lifetime as nothing in your sight. Surely every man at his best is a mere breath. Surely every man walks about as a phantom. Surely they make an uproar for nothing He amasses riches and does not know who will gather them. I always find it interesting, uh, the Ivy League schools and their huge, huge endowments. So much of that money was given by evangelical Christians who love Jesus Christ and love the Word of God. And it is being used for purposes absolutely against the gospel of Jesus Christ. Commend them for giving but you've got no control, do you? Flip over to Psalm 89. I mentioned, I I don't know if I did it here, I can't remember where I say things because I I speak too many times in a week in different places, but uh, it's it's the Fortune 500 and I think it's the Forbes 400, if I'm not mistaken. So the Fortune 400 are the 400 rich guys whenever I read the Fortune, and I get both those magazines, because they're desperate, and nobody buys magazines anymore, so you can get them for like 10 cents a year. I mean, I'm exaggerating, but I get these deals so I, and if I find one illustration, it's worth it. So I'm reading the Forbes 400. Fortune are the companies. Fortune are the companies. Okay, I'm glad you came in from Atlanta. No, you, you played, uh, really, you're helping me tonight. I'm glad you're here. Anyway, the 400. The 400 rich guys, I'm reading them. And on there, they got their name, then they got their net worth, then they got their age. You know why that's significant? Every year they're on there, they're a year closer to dying. That's why that's significant. And some of those guys are really, really, they're fitness nuts. You know why they're fitness nuts? They're trying to stay alive. I mean, good for them. Good for them. They work out. They watch their act. Good for them. That's great. That's wonderful. You're still gonna die. Jack LaLanne died (laughs) this year in Morro Bay, California. And if Jack LaLanne's going down, you're going down. That sucker was 900 years old. (laughs) And he was in shape. (laughs) Psalm 89, verse uh, 47. Remember what my span of life is. For what vanity you have created all the sons of men. What man can live and not see death? Can he deliver his soul from the power of Sheol, from the place of the dead? No. He can't. Psalm 90. Now watch it. Now we're going to get... Now we're going to get the good stuff. Here's perspective. Here's perspective on life and the brevity of life. We're men, okay? I was reading Ezekiel last week. You know how you'll, you'll read, you've read a book so many times and you'll see something you never saw before, and I can't even give you the passage. It just said, uh, uh, give, uh, you are sheep, you are men, but I am God. That's good. That's perspective You are my sheep You are men But I am God Watch this, Psalm 90 Lord, you have been our dwelling place In all generations Generations come Generations are born Generations die He's always there He was there Verse 2 Before the mountains were born or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting. You were God. He was there before creation. He was there before time. He invented time. Verse 3, you turn men back into dust and say, return, O children of men, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by. That's perspective. Perspective. Then go down to verse 10. As for the days of our life, now see, God is from everlasting to everlasting. God has no beginning. He was not created. He has always been. It's called the aseity of God, A-S-E-I-T-Y. You want to do, uh, want to do exercises to fight off senility? You want to do exercises to fight off Alzheimer's? Then you contemplate the fact that God has always existed. It is the greatest mind stretcher in the history of the world. He has always been. Everything else has been created. Everything else has a beginning. Not God. God has always been. Think about that for a minute. Yeah, but where did he come from? He's always been. Yeah, I get that. I get that. But where did he come from? Does that not just stretch your brain? But he's always been. And he always will be. He's God. Now, then there's us. Okay? Let's look at us. Moses says, this is the Psalm of Moses, verse 10. As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years. Or if due to strength, 80 years. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for soon it is gone, and we fly away. Hmm. Look at verse 12. So then those of us who are alive... In light of this fact, teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. One of the things I would take from that, and I don't say this for anyone except me, one of the things I take from that is that I don't want my kids to find out about me from reading it in a book or a diary that I wrote. I want them to know me and so do you. David, uh, David lived a long life. He didn't die in his 40s, didn't die in his 50s. Lived a long life. Uh, he was mightily used by God. We, we know about David, and we know about his great exploits. Everybody in the world knows about David. Everybody knows about David and Goliath. Everybody knows... And I, and I say everybody, even in a culture like ours, which is so biblically ignorant. Many, many people still know of David and Bathsheba. Um, so we see, we see the great exploits of David, we see the great moral failures of David, uh, the ups and downs, we have all got those. But it is said of David that he was a man after, da- uh, he was a man after God's own heart. They, there are things about David, there are some nuggets about David that are hidden away And you find them in, in passages that we tend not to give a lot of attention to But in these passages we will get glimpses into the life of David and into his heart And we'll see, uh, we'll see his character, we will see the kind of man that he was We, we see the, uh, he, he was a strong man He was an athletic man. Uh, He was a a musical man. He was a multi-gifted man. But he was also a man with tremendous depth of character, even though he had Uriah killed and he sinned with Bathsheba. Scripture says, let him who stands take heed, lest he fall. Any of us have the ability within us, and we have the capability to do what David did. Any of us, because our hearts are of the same condition. Um, I'm going to 2 Samuel chapter nine, but I wanna get a running start to 2 Samuel nine. And you're saying, haven't you already started running? Sort of, but I wanna pick it up in Samuel, specifically in regard to David's life, And just just real quick, we know that uh, Saul was the first king. The people rejected God as king. So here comes Saul, the big good-looking guy, uh, looked like a king. But he didn't have a heart for God. He's the counterfeit. He's the synthetic leader. Because he had never bowed in his heart to the king of kings, he continually disobeyed, continually rebelled against God in his heart. Eventually God said, that's it. The spirit of God was taken from Saul. It was put upon David. He's anointed. And when David shows up and then kills Goliath and the number one song in Israel is Saul has slain his thousands, David his tens of thousands, now you got a problem because now Saul is jealous. Uh, David's the authentic leader. Just summarizing here. Whenever an authentic leader shows up into the realm of the synthetic leader, the counterfeit leader, the fake leader, the external, the appearance, the teleprompter leader, when, whenever a genuine leader shows up in the presence of an authentic, and that can be a lot of guys read teleprompters, by the way. <laughs> can it not? No, I'm serious. Can it not? Yeah, I remember doing a conference years ago, big men's conference, and you know, we, it's, we, we, I mean, it was... I was there with my buddy, Stu Weber, Gary Rosberg. We probably had 1,400, 1,500 guys. And we're just getting up to go. One of the guys putting on, he goes, Hey, the, uh, the senator's here. I said, What senator? He goes, Senator. I said, Really? He goes, He's pro life. And he's a Christian. I said, Good. He said, I want you to introduce him. I said, I'm not introducing him. Tell him to take a seat out there. <laughs> he goes, Well, he's the senator. I said, I don't care. Tell him to take a seat. Oh, well, we want to honor him. I said, Why? Well, he's our sinner. I said, fine, tell him to sit down, open his Bible, be good for him. And this guy was all, I mean, he was just, I said, no, we're not introducing him. Why would we do that? Why don't we introduce this guy over here, did the plumbing in this this auditorium? Because I noticed the toilets haven't backed up. I'd say, let's give him some applause. (laughs) That's what you call real work right there. That's a working man. That's a guy that's making a difference in America, right there. <laughs> well, anyway, so I said, no, we're not doing it. And uh, so, I, you know, we were getting, we were having backstage, and then, you know, they start to, you know, next thing I know, uh, the senator comes out and prays. He got him out, you know, had him open in prayer. Now, there's a reason I didn't want to do that. And six months later, comes out this pro-Christian, former pastor, Pro life senator's got a nine year thing going on with his secretary in DC affair, leaves his wife, leaves his kids. And he was in the other party. They're on both sides. You got guys that love the Lord. God's got them spread out. You know what I'm talking about when I say that. Once again, there are authentic leaders and there are synthetic leaders, right? Right. So David, where was I before I went off on that? Yeah, it's authentic versus synthetic. But anyway, when the authentic leader shows up, the synthetic leader, what happens to him? He gets threatened, he's got to destroy. David's on the run for 10 years. And then Saul is killed in battle with his sons. Um, and then things start changing. Uh, Saul is killed in 1 Samuel 31, along with uh, Jonathan and some of his other sons. And then go to 1 Samuel. Uh, go to 2 Samuel 2:4. I want to get a running start to this. Okay, because things are moving along in David's life. So Saul is dead. Uh, David's been anointed, but uh, it doesn't happen all at once that he becomes king over, over the nation. He's been on the run for 10 years. So you get to 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 4, and it says, Then the men of Judah came, and they're anointed David king over the house of Judah. He's not, he's not king over all of Israel. He's king over the tribe of Judah. The tribe of Judah was always sort of independent, had their own army. They were all for David. They said, we're making him king. So they did. But what's interesting, if you look down at, Verse 10, Ishbosheth, why would you name a kid Ishbosheth? Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he became king over Israel. He was king for two years. The house of Judah, however, followed David. The time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. So you got a pocket of people that are following Saul, and they get one of Saul's boys and they put him up there and say, Oh, he's our king. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Time goes by. Now, there was a long war. Saul's dead. He's been running from Saul for 10 years. That's over. But the war is not over. Chapter 3 of uh, 2 Samuel. Now, there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. Watch this. And David grew steadily stronger, and the house of Saul grew weaker continually. Do you know what happens to godly men in battle? They get tired. They get fatigued. But you know what happens to them? They get stronger. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. We get tired from the battle. We get tired from the the strain. We get tired from the stress. But godly men, as they go through battle, godly men, as they go through adversity, they become stronger because they have a heart for God and the Lord is with them. Count it joy, think it joy, realize that you're in a process. Count it joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So what happened to David as the struggle goes on? David grew steadily stronger, the house of Saul grew weaker continually. Then note, if you would, uh, 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 2 Samuel 5. Times going by, then all the tribes of Israel, all the tribes, not just one tribe, not just two tribes, then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your your bone and flesh. Previously, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and in. And the Lord said to you, You will shepherd my people Israel, and you will be a a ruler over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them before the Lord at Hebron, and they anointed David king over Israel. All of Israel now. David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years. He was in Hebron. Yeah. Hebron's not the city of David. You know what the city of David is? Jerusalem. If you read the next verses, you'll find out that David went with his men, and he conquered Jerusalem. And that became his city. And it's the city of David to this day. And it's the city where the Lord Jesus Christ will come back and set up. His millennial kingdom. Okay. Um, So now David's king. Now go to uh, 2 Samuel 7. Now it came about when the king lived in his house, he had built quite a house, and the Lord, this is a great line. It came about when the king lived in his house, watch this, and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies. Wouldn't you like to have that? Wouldn't you like to be at rest from all your enemies? The enemy of financial strain? The enemy of uh, people coming after you and ambushing you? The, just Isn't that not a great line? After all these years, ten years on the run, seven years then, he's got the continual war going on before he's king over. you know, He grew stronger with the house of Saul, grew weaker. It's just, it's, just, it's just battle after battle after battle after battle. And finally, the Lord had given him rest on every side. And so now, Dave, you know what happens when you get some rest? You got time to think. Because you're not exhausted you ever just wish you could just think? Do you ever wish you could just uh, get the creative juices going again? But sometimes we're so exhausted and we're so fatigued, we're just hanging on by our fingernails. We're just trying to act like we know what we're doing. What we're, doing. Uh, we're, just, we're just exhausted. This guy had been exhausted, but now the Lord gives him rest, and so now, he, now you know what happens? He takes a couple weeks off. He plays some golf. He's doing some fly fishing, and suddenly this sucker—the juices are rolling. They're rolling. So what's he going to do? Now he starts. Got. He doesn't have to worry about this and this. So now what? He says, "Man, I'm going to build the Lord a temple." The Lord says, "You're not doing that. It's going to be your boy." Yes, sir. Okay. So maybe I'll get some things ready and go down to Lowe's and Home Depot and buy them out and cut all the trees in Lebanon and get them down here and just kind of get him set up. So that's what David did. Let me show you something else that happens. Now that he's got some peace, now that he's got some rest, now we're going to get a glimpse into this guy's character. Look at uh, chapter 9 of 2 Samuel. Then then David said, Is there yet anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now this is a pretty wild verse. Let's read that one more time. Is there anyone left of the house of Saul, the house of who? The house of Saul, that I may show him kindness. Well, what the heck are you talking about? That's the guy that that rode you and drove you and tried to kill you and pursued you and made you live in the caves. Yeah. Uh, Is there anyone left of his line that I can show kindness to? Now, there's greatness. There's greatness of character. There have been some great feuds in history. Uh, Hatfield, McCoys, that literally went on for generations. They just kept killing each other. Generation after generation after generation. What was their calling? To kill each other. I remember reading a, a history of Scotland about the Scottish Highlanders and the different clans. You know who had a blood feud going on for generations? Uh, The Campbells and the McDonalds. That's why to this day a Campbell will never go into a McDonalds. That's just a joke, guys. It's pretty feeble, it just came to me. They go to Wendy's, but they won't go to McDonalds. Uh, And and there were were instances, that would go on for years and years, and those, those Highlanders, those Scottish Highlanders, those guys were just, they were just brutes and they carried these claymores, these massive swords. And there was one instance, I mean it's documented, where one of these uh, Campbells is passing by one of the McDonald's and he felt like the man's expression was disrespectful, his expression. He took that claymore and hacked the man to death. Uh, A church full of one of the clans was burned down by the other clan in retribution for something that had been done before. You don't see that in David. Now, why is this? Is there anyone yet left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? All right, now we're getting into character. This isn't spin. This isn't... um, You know what this is? This is absolute character because here is a man after God's own heart, and why, when he's got some time to think and breathe, why does he say, hey, is there anyone left of Saul's household that I can show kindness to for the sake of Jonathan? What is he talking about? He he had made, watch this, he had made a covenant with Jonathan. Now, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, but I wanna refresh your memory as to what that means. And if you go back, this happened after Goliath was killed. If you go back to 1 Samuel 18, we talk a lot about integrity. We talk a lot about um, gravitas. David's going to demonstrate it to us. Uh, In 1 Samuel 18, he had just, he had just finished uh, the thing with Goliath. Uh, verse 3 of 18, Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his self. These guys were both warriors. They had a love for each other, they respected each other, they were were friends, they were going to back each other up. Um, I read this a couple weeks ago, I'm going to read it again. Al Jansen talks about the difference between a contract and a covenant. Uh, Jansen says, today most people don't understand what covenant means. Our culture is built on contracts. And everyone knows that a crackerjack lawyer can find a loophole if you really want out. So contracts get longer and longer as the parties try to close all possible loopholes. But litigation increases because people change their minds and they want release from their agreements. That's a contract. In ancient times, a covenant was a legal agreement. David and Jonathan made a what? Covenant. Not a contract, a covenant. In ancient times, a covenant was a legal agreement, but the two major differences, but there were two major differences from contracts today. First, a covenant was made before deity, a covenant was made before God. Secondly, and the penalty for breaking it was death. Boy, that sure kind have got of clean-up litigation, wouldn't it? <laughs> I made a covenant before God, and if I break my covenant, it's death. That cuts through a lot of attorney fees. So you read about Texas and the history after the Civil War, and there was no money, and there's Reconstruction, and all they could do was round up Longhorns and take them north. And you'd have guys 16, 17, you had some older guys, but the old, you know, guys coming back from Civil War, the veterans, they, they started rounding them up, taking them up north. Some younger guys, you had guys getting 1,000, 2,000 Longhorns, driving up north, and the trail boss was 18 years old. And they did everything on a handshake. And if you violated that agreement, it was death. It might be in a gun battle, but even if it didn't end in physical death, Uh, you suffered death of your reputation if you broke an agreement you suffered death of your reputation and nobody would do business with you right yeah two aspects to a covenant first one is two additional first one is commitment When when a covenant was made it was commitment to the protection the provision and the well-being of the other party and extends to his children. So then there's permanence in that it is a, there is never an expiration date on a covenant, Larry Richards writes. So the covenant is permanent. It doesn't expire. It is for the protection, the provision, well-being of the other party. So Jonathan made that to David, his protection, his provision, even to his children. David made it to Jonathan, provision, Protection and well-being of Jonathan and even to his children. Therefore, that takes me to 2 Samuel chapter 9. Fifteen years after this occurrence in 1 Samuel 18, where they make the covenant, then you get to 2 Samuel 9. David said, is there anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for uh, for Jonathan's sake? I made a covenant with Jonathan. Is there anybody I, I, I can minister to of his line? Anybody? Okay, I'll get to that in a minute. All right, verse 2. Now there was a servant in the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. The king said, Is there not yet anyone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan who is crippled in both feet. Really? Yeah, there is. Why is that? Uh, When... David, when Jonathan and Saul were killed, see, the common thing back then is that when one nation killed another king, what they would do is not the, they not only kill the king, but they didn't kill all his sons. You know why? Because they didn't want those kids growing up and coming after them. So what happened was, when the nurse maiden of Saul's, of, of Jonathan's son, heard What had happened, she figured they were going to come after this five-year-old boy. She picks him up, she runs, she trips, she drops him, and he is lame in both feet for the rest of his life. His name is Mephibosheth. Uh, Notice verse 4. Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan who is crippled in both feet. So the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, Behold... He is in the house of Maker, the son of Amiel, in Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Maker, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar. Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and prostrated himself. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he said, here is your servant. Now, I've got to tell you something. Mephibosheth was in hiding all these years. Why was he in hiding? Because he knew the way things usually worked. If you're the son of a king, if you're in the line of the king, you're to be killed. He had been spared, he'd been rescued, but he is living in this little nowhere place called Lodabar. Which is in the middle of nowhere. The picture for, uh, for Detroit last night. What's that guy's name? I can't remember. What is it? Schwitz? Fister. Fister. Yeah, at some point they said Fister's from Merced, California which is up the road where I was born and raised. And they said, yeah, I asked Fister. well, what, what, what's in Merced? And he said, nothing. Which is true, if you've ever been to Merced. There's just agriculture. And in the winter, there's tule fog, and you can't see the line on Highway 99. And I live just south in Bakersfield, and it's that way, the whole San Joaquin Valley. There's nothing. They're just crops. And in the summer, there's tule fog, and it's just brutally hot in the summer, and you, that's it. There's, not, there's nothing. It's a pretty good place <laughs> to raise a family, because there's not a lot of things to distract them. Uh, that's how bar was. The word low, you know what that means? It means nothing, just like Merced. There was nothing to do. Uh, the bar means no promise. Wasn't a lot of options. Wasn't a lot of opportunity. This guy was hiding out. He was hiding out in the middle of nowhere, just trying to stay under the radar to, to keep alive. Just as David had been on the run for all those years from Saul, here Mephibosheth is hiding out from David, thinking that if he exposes himself, David's going to cut him to shreds. That's all he knows. That's how things work. He doesn't know David. So he's living this double life. And and suddenly they send somebody to get him. It was like in, uh, it's like when uh, (coughs) Tommy Lee Jones um, arrested Harrison Ford in The Fugitive. You remember that? You guys didn't see that, did you? Okay. Finally, the gig's up. They got him. Now, so what is Mephibosheth thinking? He's thinking, this guy's going to hack me to pieces. The whole way up to see David, he's got to be thinking, it's over. It's done. I'm finished. And so note what David says to him right out of the box. David said in verse 6, Mephibosheth. And he said, Here is your servant. David said to him, Do not fear. First thing. You have to worry, man. Don't worry. I'm on your team. I'm on your side. That's the last thing he was expecting. Now watch this. David said to him, Do not fear, for I will surely show kindness to you. Watch this, for the sake of your father. Jonathan, with whom I made a covenant which extends to protection and provision, even to his children. And 15 years later, I have found you, and I'm going to bless you beyond your wildest dreams. Did he have to do it? No. Watch what he does. I will surely show kindness to you for the sake of your father, Jonathan and will restore to you all the land of your grandfather Saul, and you shall eat at my table regularly." Let me tell you something, this guy just hit the lottery. I'm gonna, This guy's in hiding, this guy won't even go out to the 7-Eleven. This guy is under the radar, he's in witness protection, he's trying to live a life that nobody knows who he is, and, and he can't be spending money right and left, he's got to be low-key, and suddenly, he thinks it's over. He thinks he's going to die. And suddenly, David pulls up a dump truck and dumps it a, a, a blessing on this guy. All the land of your grandfather Saul. That wasn't, that wasn't 15 acres. That was a lot of land. All that land I'm giving to you. Oh, and you shall eat at my table. Now watch this. Verse 8, he prostrated himself and said, what is, your, what is your servant that you should regard a dead dog like me? Hey, hey, by the way, doesn't this remind you of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Isn't this what Jesus has done for us? Did, um, did you seek Christ? Before you answer, the answer is No. He sought you. You say, Well, I I turned to him and I asked him, Yeah, but you know why you did that? We love him because he first loves us. Yeah. Well, I, I sought him. Yeah, you did because he sought you first. Psalm 14 says, There's no one who seeks God. You sure about that? Look it up, it's in the text. In fact, let's look at it, just in case you think I'm kidding you. Because, see, we think, uh, in fact, we have a a group of churches that are called seeker churches. And they're actually theologically deficient. Now, if they want to say, we're seekers of those who are seeking God because God sought them first, that's a good term. We know what they mean. We'll give them a break. But look at Psalm 14. Psalm 14. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. No one. So there's got to be someone. we we'll look at the next verse. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good. There's not even one. Not one. Not one. You know, why you, you know why you sought him? Because no one can come unless the Father draws him, Jesus said. To his disciples, Jesus said, You did not choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you, that you might go forth and bear fruit, and that your fruit might remain. In other words, I'm, I'm not even going to save you, And give you eternal life and give you an an internal peace, which passes all understanding. But I'm going to make your life more productive than you would have ever dreamed or imagined. Because I'm going to use you to impact other people. And do something significant and substantial. That'll last for eternity. You see? But you see, we all start out saying, in our heart of hearts, if God just left us to ourselves, we would all be atheists. All of us. All of us would say, there is no God. Why? Because it's Romans 1. We want to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because if he's God, if he's really God, then we've got to submit to him and we've got to bow to him and he's got to be king of our life instead of us being king. Because we want to call the shots. It's true for all of us. So how do we ever break out of that? The only way we break out of it is that he breaks us out of it. He comes in and loves us. He overwhelms us. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? He takes the initiative. He seeks me out. He changes my heart. That's the gospel. See, David, what David's doing here from Mephibosheth is what Jesus has done for us. Is this making any sense? Absolutely. See, this is how we love other people. Lord, bring somebody across your life and they're in need. Help them out. Now, can you help everybody out? No, but you don't understand what I'm saying. There'll be a situation... God will clearly providentially bring someone in your life. You get to know them a little bit of a relationship they got a need. Help them. Help them. You say, Well, I don't have a whole lot. Well, maybe that's because you don't help. You know? Given it shall be given unto you. Press down, shaken together, running over. You see? Take the little you got, help them out. Elijah shows up to that widow. And he says, hey, I'm wondering if you can make me some pancakes. And she said, well, I got this flour and a little oil. I'm going to grill it up, and then my son and I are going to die. He said, oh, well, why don't you go ahead and give it to me? And she did. And then what did God do to her? He blessed her. And in the midst of a famine, her oil and her flour never ran out. And suddenly she heard uh, 18-wheel semi-tractor-trailers coming up the hill. And then crews came in and said, we had to build warehouses to handle all this oil and all this flour. Yeah, Pillsbury, we, we, we've, got, we've got 10 trucks here, tractor-trailers. This is first load. We've got other guys, they're working triple shifts. We've got to build these warehouses, store all this. Is that what happened? No, no, no. You no, know, she just had one little thing of flour, one little thing of oil. But every time she went in and took some out, and she went over there and she looked back in, it hadn't gone down. So help somebody out. That's what Christian men do. Don't hoard. Someone has said, don't be a cul-de-sac, be a conduit. Just be a flight, uh, just be a pipe. It comes in, Let it go out. It comes in. Somebody's got a need. Give it to them. Because as you give it to them, watch out because here it comes. I'll I'll be honest with you. Mary and I, we talked about this a while back. And I almost hesitate to say this to you. But it's been our experience. I can't prove this biblically. Over our life, and we've been married 35 years, She's a very blessed woman. (laughs) I just thought I'd share that. But I'm more blessed than she is. Anyway, we've had times where we felt like we saw someone, there was a legitimate need. Well, gosh, we're not rolling in it, but you know what? We've got enough to help them, so let's help them. We realized something a few years ago. Just about every time we've ever done that, Whatever we have done has come back to us four times. Now, every time? No, but enough that I see a pattern. I'm not surprised when it happens. Because the word of God is true. You see? So be a conduit. Just be a conduit. David was a conduit to this guy. I'm going to give you all the land. Hey, you know who that long belonged to? David. That land was David. You know what David said? Here, take all this land. That was your grandpa's land. That was your dad's land. I made a covenant with your dad. You know what I'm falling, I'm good for it. That's your land. So, hey, by the way, you're crippled in both feet. All right, right, let's. hey, where's Ziba? Ziba, where are you? Come here, Ziba. Remember Ziba? Sounds like a golden retriever. <laughs> Verse 8, uh, 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 what's this guy's name? Mephibosheth? He's overwhelmed. He's, he prostrated himself. What is your servant that you should regard a dead dog like me? Now watch this. Then the king called Saul's servant Ziba and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and all that has house I have given to your master's grandson. You and your sons and your servants shall cultivate the land for him. He can't do it. And you shall bring in the produce so that your master's grandson may have food. And by the way, he's going to be eating at my table so he's he's not going to need the food. So you produce the food and then he's going to sell it and he's going to have a continual income. Even though, because he's eating at my table. Not only is he blessing him, putting him at his table, he's giving him the land, everything that happens on the land, all the produce that's sold is going to go into his account. He's going to have a continual endowment. Not to go to him, but to go to his kids. Now to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond anything we could ever ask or think. Has God ever, have you walked with Christ long enough where he has done something for you that so stunned you and so shocked you with his goodness and his mercy that it just blew you away and shut your mouth? you ever had God do that for you? Raise your hand if you have. Look, there's a lot of hands. It's, it's unbelievable when he does it. You just, you're just kind of stunned. You're just, you're just stunned. You, you, if you had a million years, you could have never figured that one out. And you were probably in a pretty tough situation, and he delivered you in a way you could have never have imagined. Here's a guy that the day before is hiding out in low Debar. Nothing. No promise. Suddenly, he's got the land, he's got the, he's got the crops, they got the combines. It, it, it's like, it's a complete reversal. And Ziba, watch this. Hey, Ziba. Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall eat at my table regularly. Now, Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands, his servant, so your servant will do. In other words, the 15 sons and the 20 servants, they're going to work the land on behalf of Mephibosheth. Oh, and then it's going to track down to his son. Mephibosheth, verse 12, had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in the house of Ziba were servants to Mephibosheth. Um, So, let me sum this up. Here's number one. David sought him David sought him. Jesus has sought us. Here's number two. David kept his promise, his covenant promise. The Lord God always keeps his promise. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Earlier I was talking about in the prayer about being depressed, fighting off despair, because sometimes you feel like you're in this by yourself. I will never leave you, or what? He'll never leave. I'll never believe. i It's a promise. He's a covenant-keeping God. David restored his land. Look at Romans eight thirty-two. See, we don't. A lot of times, we're we're kind of ignorant about what's been given to us in Christ. Romans eight chapter thirty-two. He who did not spare his own son. Who's that? The father. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? That's amazing. Well, how come he hasn't given me? Well, man, there's things I have that I I don't have yet. Well, that's because you can't handle it. You're not mature enough. Sorry to tell you. You ever take a four-year-old with you to the grocery store and in the checkout counter, and you have four people in front of you and they've got all those racks of stuff, and that little kid was you, daddy, 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 <laughs> just, just kidding. I mean, it was a metaphor. <laughs> Shut up. Daddy, can I have a bar? Can I have a Snickers? <laughs> In Christian love, absolutely. See, you knew my heart, didn't you? That's right. I was trying to train up a child in the way that he should go. No, all kids want. I, I, want, I want candy, I want Hershey Bar. I want, it's like, uh, you ever go trick-or-treating, all that stuff? Do you, you, when you're a little kid, you just want to consume that stuff before you go to bed. Well, your mom won't let you do it. Why? You're going to vomit all night. You'll have cramps. You'll have all that stuff. So that's why, while you're sleeping, your mom and dad eat it. God knows what we can handle. You don't give a four-year-old 14 pounds of Hershey bars, even though that's what they want. God knows when to give us what is best and when we can handle it. Does he not? Okay. Uh, Okay. I'm at zero, zero, zero back there. So let me give you one more. Oh, I'm going to give you two more. David gave him an ongoing provision, did he not? Yeah. And my God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. You say, but, excuse, I don't know how they're coming in. Well, you don't need to know. All you need to know is him. He doesn't tell you how. He just tells you he'll do it. So you don't have to stay up all night being anxious how he's going to do it because he gives to his beloved even in their sleep. So you might as well go ahead and go to sleep. Right? Because God works the night shift, as Ron Mel used to say. So you go to sleep and rest. Last one. David gave him a place of honor at his table. You know what that always reminds me of? Psalm 23. Thou shalt prepare for me the table. in the midst of my enemies. Remember that verse? It's a wild verse. It's talking about Jesus being the great shepherd. Thou shalt prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. It's a table. It's where you get fed. Thou will prepare for me a table in the presence of my enemies. That's amazing. It doesn't say he'll take away our enemies. It just says he'll take care of us in the presence of our enemies. By the way, the Lord is my shepherd. That's the context of that. That's what the great shepherd does for us. He prepares a table for us. Um, Sometimes, uh, you know, the the primary job of a shepherd is to feed the flock. Sometimes there's no grass because there's drought. Like we've had drought, suddenly we're getting rain. We thank the Lord for it. But when drought hits Israel and there's no grassland, what the shepherd has to do is he has to lead his flock and they have to leave their normal geographical boundaries and they have to go find grass. The shepherd's out in front. The sheep are following They might have to go six days, seven days, ten days, 14 days walk. The sheep are getting gaunt. They can't find any grassland. And one morning, they're coming up over a little hill. The shepherd's out in front. The sheep are behind. And that shepherd comes up that little hill, and he looks down, and there's a little valley, 20, 25, 30 acres, of green grass. This is where you don't want a rookie shepherd. You want a veteran shepherd, let me tell you why. That rookie shepherd, rookies have great potential but no experience. That rookie shepherd is gonna see that grass and run those sheep right in there because they've been looking for two weeks. You know what the veteran shepherd's gonna do? Veteran shepherd's gonna see that grass, he's gonna turn and he's gonna push those sheep back down and he's gonna bed them down. He's gonna get them all down. Get him calm. And then what he's gonna do is by himself, he's gonna walk up that hill and walk down that little slope. And he's gonna walk every inch of that 25 acres. And he's gonna walk it like this, hunched over, looking very carefully. What's he looking for? Looking for holes in the ground about like this. Why is he looking for holes in the ground? Because in certain parts of Israel, there are poisonous snakes called adders that live 18 to 24 inches below the ground. You can't see them, but the telltale sign are the holes. So what if he sees the holes and the fields infested with adders? Well, see, he's a veteran shepherd. He's thought of this possibility. He Takes off a flask off his belt, linseed oil with a little pitch, and every hole, he lubricates the hole. He'll go to the next one. He'll go to the, every hole is lubricated, might take him a couple hours. After he's lubricated every hole, he'll go in and get the sheep. Sheep go up the little rise, come down the slope, and there's the grass. Man, they're thrilled. They haven't eaten for two weeks. They're chomping on that grass. I mean, they're in hot, they're, 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 they're pumped. This is what they're after. Just enjoying the grass, loving it. Life, life doesn't get any better than this. And all the time, while they're eating that grass, those adders, are trying to get up because adders will nip the nose of a grazing sheep and kill it with its poisonous bite. Those adders are trying to get up out of that hole. They're trying to get up against there, get up up that hole and bite the nose of the sheep But because of the wisdom and foresight of the great shepherd. Their bodies up against the viscosity of that oil, they can't get up out of those holes. And unbeknownst to the sheep, those sheep are literally eating in the presence of their enemies. Now that's our great shepherd. He knows exactly what he's doing. He'll make a way where there is no way. He'll feed us in the midst of the people that are against us and hate us and are trying to thwart us, but they can't. We're all Mephibosheths, and Jesus is the great shepherd. That's why we're going to keep going, because he walks ahead of us. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for the truth of the word of God. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his greatness. We thank you for this glimpse into David's character. May we be men like him. Men who, uh, we we had a great movement. We call the Promise Keepers. And I remember Chuck one time at one of those events saying to those guys, are you a promise keeper or are you a promise maker? We want to keep our promises. We want to keep our covenants. And we are so grateful that you keep the ones you make with us. May we follow your example, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.